If ever there were a film to restore cinema's faith in sight, it is surely Julian Schnabel's masterful adaptation of Jean-Dominique Bobie's memoir, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Bobie was a sometime actor, other time author, and most effectively editor of the French fashion magazine Elle. A divorced father of two, he not only had an Epicurean approach to living, he also had the means to sate his appetite. Wine connoisseur, gourmand and aesthete, the lover of more than anyone's fair share of beautiful women, he was a very French definition of bon vivant. But all the joie de vivre came to a shuddering halt when, aged 43, he suffered a catastrophic stroke that plunged him into a coma. When he finally wakened 10 days later, his recovery was barely that. Bobby was paralysed. He could not speak and had only enough motor skills to voluntarily blink his left eye. Bobby was locked in, a medical condition where the victim's brain is still so functional that they know what is going on around them, but they have precious little means of communicating with the outside world. To say a film restores cinema's faith in sight may sound strange, but given that cinema is predominantly a visual medium, it is curious the amount of times its masterworks call into question the phenomenon of seeing. Film is built on seeing, and yet, from cinema's earliest days, some of the medium's greatest practitioners have been suspicious, if not downright distrustful, of sight. Consider Georges Méliès' special effects. He devised them specifically to trick the eye into believing an illusion was real. And with that in mind, look at his 1902 epic, Le Voyage dans la Lune. Where does the rocket land? It doesn't so much land as crash into the moon's eye. Seems that not only were pioneer filmmakers questioning the nature of sight, they were assaulting the eyes as well. If such actions were conscious, they undoubtedly climaxed in 1929 with arguably the most shocking image cinema has ever produced. Un Chien Andalou, the short surrealist film co-directed by Luis Bunuel and Salvador Dali, opens with a man taking a razor blade and slicing open a woman's eyeball. In that one sequence, Bunuel and Dali showed that cinema is a construct and everything it shows has to be questioned. This idea is explicitly explored in detective stories, where the audience may be tempted to believe what they see, but the sleuth cannot afford that luxury. Whether it is Sam Spade, Philip Marlowe or Hercule Poirot, the private eye has to be alert to illusions. Two acute examples would be Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, where James Stewart's Scotty Ferguson is duped simply because he believes what he sees. A portrait. Do you see a portrait? No. If I could just find the key, the beginning, and, and, and put it together, I'd... Explain it away. And Roman Polanski's Chinatown, where Jack Nicholson's Jake Gittes sees but fails to recognise what is in front of him. Yeah, yeah, bad for the glass. Oh, yes. Bad for glass. Salt water, very bad for glass. Both men fail to see correctly and with fatal results. Extending from there, Jonathan Demme's The Silence of the Lambs posits the act of looking as the basis for murderous intent. We begin by coveting what we see every day. Don't you feel eyes moving over your body, Clarice? That can be traced back to such landmark films as Robert Seedmack's The Spiral Staircase, 
Michael Powell's Peeping Tom, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, Dario Argento's The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, John Carpenter's Halloween, and Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill, where we are placed in the eyes of the killer. In other words, sight can be homicidal. So much for the detective and horror genres. What of sci-fi? In Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, Alex Delarge undergoes the Ludovico technique where his eyes are clamped open so he cannot avoid the images shown to him as part of his aversion therapy. It's funny how the colours of the real world only seem really real when you video them on a screen. In Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, replicants are virtually identical to humans except for their eyes that glow. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. James Cameron's The Terminator cuts out his own eyeball in order to rectify his vision. And in Steven Spielberg's Minority Report, John Anderton undergoes an eye transplant in order to avoid people falsely identifying him as the man who has yet to commit a murder. And that's not to mention the Eye of Sauron in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. Sauron's eye represents tyranny, and if caught in its line of sight, the heat of its unblinking glare will destroy you. You cannot hide. I see There is no life in the void. Given that Tolkien wrote his great novel in the middle of the 20th century, when all across Europe dictators were seizing power, it is easy to grasp that in a totalitarian state there can be no secrets, no private thoughts, no internal life. Big Brother sees everything, and he is always watching. The diving bell and the butterfly is neither mystery, horror, sci-fi, nor fantasy. But it is memoir, a genre in which the events are recalled through the eyes of the narrator. Surely yet another opportunity for a filmmaker to undermine our faith in what we see. Instead, Julian Schnabel not only celebrates sight as a means of navigating the world, he also venerates it as a means of communication. Communication is the basis for all human activity. We are social animals, and so, somewhere along the line, we need to interact. Before we can do that, we need to see, and therefore recognise one another. That means recognising ourselves in one another, and doing so, We recognise, accept, and try to solve each other's difficulties. Communication leads to community. Here is Julian Schnabel talking about what prompted him to direct the film. I used to read to Fred Hughes, who worked for Andy Warhol. Uh, He had MS, and as he got sicker, he ended up in his room, in this bed in the middle of his living room, and he was like Miss Habersham. I mean, he was there, and he was staring out at me through his body, and I used to read to him, and his, and his nurse, Darren, gave me this book, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. I didn't look at it first. I had the book for years, and then Laurie Anderson came over one day out in Montauk and read it, and said, it's great, and I said, well, give me that thing, and I read it, and 
my dad got sick and he had he had prostate cancer and he was uh, getting worse and worse and I had to take the kids to Mexico for Christmas was in the room with my father and the script of Diving Bell and the Butterfly arrives and it was like you know how many times do I turn my back on this thing so Schnabel connected with the story by way of his own personal experience now listen to the film's screenwriter Ronald Harwood detail his approach to breaking the story out from inside Bobby's head. I was very stuck for about three weeks. Then I made the breakthrough. My eureka moment was deciding that it should be told from the camera's point of view. Most of the film is told from his point of view. The camera is him. Then it wasn't so difficult because I don't know, I could just select from his book and select the images I liked. He hears his own voice, and we hear his own voice, but people in reality can't hear him, he can't speak. In other words, we see as Bobby sees. And so when he undertakes his memoir, he doesn't so much write it, or even type it, as much as blink it. Beginning with the most commonly used signifiers in the French language, Bobby's caregiver would list out the letters of the alphabet and would stop when Bobby wanted that letter. Then, blink by blink, Bobby chose the letters to make up the words, to create the sentences, to construct his book. Where Bobby's body was almost utterly atrophied, his emotions weren't. Instead, he was somehow able to avoid bitterness and anger, and so was able to liberate himself to communicate joy and humour. Literature asks us to read between the lines. Film to read between the frames. But what is remarkable here is that we are constantly reading between Bobby's blinks. Those blinks became Bobby's own Morse code, through which he signalled to the outside world what was happening inside his head. Here is the film's cinematographer, Janusz Kaminski. It's all the individual aspect from our lives that we contribute to the movies, you know. You can get five cinematographers, five directors, same story, because you bring your own perspective. And what I think makes filmmakers successful is the, the whole idea that those who are successful, they have something to say. But, you know, it's constant balance. You know, it's not like the camera goes right here, you know, and it's the story. No, it may go a little bit here, may go a little bit here, may go a little bit higher. Down. You know, you look at someone lower, different story. You go eye level, different story. You go this way, you know. So, you know, it all depends how, it, how it's worked out between you and the director, you know. It makes a difference. Two inches up or down makes a tremendous difference. In 1944, the French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre published his play No Exit, in which three dead people are locked in a room for eternity, discussing notions of power, suffering and freedom. Here is an English translation of the play, produced by the BBC in 1964. Do you remember all the stories they told us about the fire and brimstone and the torture chambers and the burning mall? Old wives' tales. There's no need for red-hot pokers. Hell is other people. Hell is other people. Surely hell is the opposite. Hell is isolation. Or if there are people around you, it is the inability to communicate with them. It is being subject to your own worst fears and frailties. It is being trapped inside your own head. Now, I'm citing Sartre's play specifically because when Garcin announces, almost casually, that hell is other people, the person to whom he is speaking, Valet, suffers from ocular atrophy. Valet 
cannot close his eyes. In other words, Valet sees everything, and so cannot escape what he sees. Why is that relevant? Because Sarth believed that to see is to subject another person to your look, and to be seen is to be subject to that other person's look. According to Sarth, the tyrannical gaze of Big Brother begins with you and I looking at one another. To see is to enslave. Hell is other people. The diving bell and the butterfly restores cinema's faith in sight and shows us that not only is heaven other people, but that the sight of them is a beauty to behold. <laughs>